0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the internet essentials program, the world opened up He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
1: This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: I think it's a high calling, Alan, really. I I remember as a kid seeing a comedian come up to the small hotel I was working in as a busboy. He came in his Cadillac, he did 40 minutes, and people were hysterical laughing. And for that time, they forgot their disappointment in their marriage, their health, their children, their life, whatever it was. And I I still think, while it cures nothing directly, therapeutically, it has tremendous value in in a, a release for life.
1: That's actor, writer, singer, and comedian Robert Klein. We met when he was just launching his career in comedy clubs, and this is the first time we've been able to get together again in a long while. It was good to catch up. So, Robert, this is really fun to be talking with you again. We haven't talked much in a long time. Long time. I remember when we were both acting in a musical on Broadway called The Apple Tree, and I think you were just beginning to do stand-up. That was the impression I had. Was that true?
2: It is. come back to New York from Second City in Chicago, which was the greatest thing that ever happened. I auditioned for the first Broadway show I ever auditioned for, Mike Nichols. I even made Mike laugh, and I idolized him. And I spent seven months in feathers listening to you sing. (laughs) (laughs) I'll explain to everyone that it was three one acts. The first was uh, Adam and Eve based on uh, Mark Twain and only you and Barbara Harris and Larry Blyden were in that one. Second act was the lady and the tiger and the uh, four or five and five, I guess, women and men in the chorus. We were in that one. And the third one was Passionella, based on the Jules Pfeiffer. And, um, you know, I remember something. We were in Boston, and uh, Peter, I forgot his name, they brought in to help Elliot Lawrence with the orchestra and the singing, and he was coaching you in an empty theater, and he used the song your father sang in Guys and Dolls, and he kept on raising the key. The theater was empty.
1: <laughs> I don't remember this.
2: And, you know, <laughs> could I, could I? Know I? when I no. He he got the note he wanted. It was wonderful. It sent chills down my spine.
1: I don't remember that at all. You don't. But you know what I do remember, really, with fond memories, is after we opened, you started to try out your comedy act a couple of blocks from the theater, a club called The, the Improv. Improv. Yeah. Right. And we used to come down and watch you and cheer you on. And you were great. It was really fun to, to see you starting out like that.
2: I always appreciated that. You and Barbara and Larry and Carmen Alvarez and the people in the cast came down to the improv, and I got up, and I had become somewhat polished at the Second City, and it was a wonderful night. You know, I did well. It meant a lot that everyone came. And a a guy came up to me with a black suit and a red tie and said, I'll tell you, you know, you were brilliant, okay? It was Rodney Dangerfield, I never laid eyes on this guy. And he became my mentor, my my Yale drama school for stand-up comedy, honestly.
1: And I remember seeing you at Dangerfield's club. You were hilarious. And I was laughing, but there was a guy behind me who was not only laughing, but stamping his feet and kicking me in the back with his knees. <laughs> and I, I got, and I got a little annoyed and I turned around and it was Rodney Dangerfield.
2: <laughs> himself.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in Rodney Dangerfield being your mentor because he was so vastly different in style and personality from the personality, the persona that you presented on stage. In what way was he your mentor?
2: Well, after he praised me to the sky and I had never met the man, he said, now you have to come for three years every night to get it right. (laughs) (laughs) What happened is I followed him around. Um, He was 20 years exactly older than I. I'm 81. He would have been 101 now. And uh, I learned basic things. Who's in the audience? Who's paying you? Uh, How to handle the mic? Also a very important thing. Up to that time, not many comedians wrote their own material. They had writers. And he was a primary uh, joke writer. And for a man with uh, lacking certain disciplines in his personal life, drinking too much and too much indulgence and this and that. When he had a Tonight Show to do, he would start two or three months earlier and start writing the jokes and put them on a shirt cardboard mm. that you get from the laundry. Yeah, And so I learned preparation from him, um, the style, uh, my own style, which he, I, I wouldn't copy his. He called me the next dimension because I, was, I went to the Yale Drama School and he graduated high school. He was an amazingly intelligent person. And he, was, uh, he, he became an icon late in life.
1: Did he give you tips on constructing a joke?
2: Yes. You, 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 don't, you try it out. If it doesn't work, you don't give up on it. There, there might be something in it. If you think it's funny, you reconstruct it, try it again and you have to have a certain amount of patience, and you have to do it a lot. You have to, you you can't just lay off and forget about it. It's got to be your passion. And it was his. You know, he initially left show business. He was named Jack Roy. Uh, His father was a vaudevillian who deserted the family. And also, it brings up something else, Alan. I'm going to ask you this. A lot of people think, like Tennessee Williams wrote in a preamble to uh, 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 *Glass Menagerie*, a reissue, that uh, neurosis was the sand in his oyster. A lot of people think, especially comedy, must come from unhappiness or difficulty, or that the creative spirit must come from that. Do you do you think that holds at all?
1: You know, I've heard that many times during my life. I don't see that being true. I've. I've worked with a lot of talented people who seemed very neurotic. And I've been with many neurotic people who had no talent. (laughs) I don't know if they necessarily go together.
2: That's true. But I mean, I think about Beethoven and Mozart and uh, a lot of comedians. But there is this, I call it, you know, the Pagliacci syndrome. Uh, Sometimes when people meet a comedian, he seems so calm and even... Uh, emotionally uh, not there or somewhat depressed because it's a contrast in the way you see this person on stage. But I can mention a lot. Rodney certainly had an unhappy kind of life. Jonathan Winters, one of my true idols, definitely had a difficult time. And he feels definitely that his comedy came out of unhappiness and loneliness
1: As we've been talking, you've expressed a kind of analytic understanding of comedy or reaching for it, looking for it. Have you thought over the years about what makes something funny, or is it all an intuitive response to an idea?
2: I think the latter, intuitive response to an idea, because um, there is no universal joke. I am a great fan of the ancients, of W.C. Fields, the Marx brothers. You can see the poster for Duck Soup behind me here. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, Chaplin, Buzz, Buster Keaton. And um, I had a, during the World's Fair of 1964, I had a German girlfriend and an Austrian girlfriend. And my Austrian girlfriend, Dagmar Wuschko, I said, Dagmar, do you like Laurel and Hardy? You mean Fumf and Fumf, whatever they called them in, uh, <laughs> in Austria. She said, no, no, my mother took me in Vienna. They hurt each other, she said. So I thought, you know, if you take it literally, I mean, the Stooges with their smacking and Abbott and Costello and slapstick in general. Didn't Mel Brooks say something? "If, If you trip on a banana peel, it's a tragedy. If you watch it, it's a comedy or something like that. So there is no universal joke. And I think all cultures have humor but I think some more than others, like why are there so many Jewish comedians? Well, Jew, Jews do not have a, uh, a, a lock on comedy, but I think there is a, some sort of coordination, some sort of um, it's not a yin and yang. I'm looking for the word and I can't think of it, but the Irish, for example, American slave humor, concentration camp humor, sometimes people who are oppressed. Uh, Humor has always been a great outlet.
1: You remind me of a perfect example. I I was at a dinner honoring Simon Wiesenthal, the Nazi hunter. And he loved jokes, and he was telling me one of his favorite jokes. And a man, a little man, came up to the dais and said, remember me? And Wiesenthal said, I remember you from the camp. They hadn't seen each other since they were in a concentration camp together. And tears streamed down his face. And they spoke for a minute or two together. The man went away. And Wiesenthal, with tears on his face, finished the joke. (laughs) You obviously have strong political opinions. Did you let them surface in your comedy?
2: I did a lot. I, I, I did big time, and my second album was called Mind Over Matter. And I think that lit up a lot of... Bill Maher has, has said publicly how that affected him.
1: I think Jay Leno certainly has done a lot of political humor. And he, I believe he and Jerry Seinfeld, have both said that you were an influence on them. They're both very different from one another. What, what do you suppose the influence would have been
2: I'll tell you exactly, because both of them were in uh, this documentary about me, which was unfortunately produced by the Weinstein Company. It was in litigation for a few years, (laughs) but is is now uh, available, I think, on uh, Apple TV or one of those. It's called Robert Klein Still Can't Stop His Leg. And I think Leno said it best. He said, when you're a kid in Western Massachusetts and you... um, you you're into comedy. You you like comedy, and you're interested in being a comedian. People go commiserate with your mother. Like, is he still into that? Is he still going to pursue it? Has he given it up yet? You know. <laughs> and you could point to Robert Klein. He's sort of normal. He went to college. You know. The, remember what we used to think of comedians until it changed. Uh, Lenny Bruce, Woody Allen, uh, uh, Bob Newhart. Uh, Cosby, I mean, people who who were no longer guys in tuxedos with cufflinks, but did it a different way. And he said, you could point to Robert Klein. Uh, Bill Maher was interested in my words. He wrote them down. He wanted to see what they looked like in the printed page. And uh, Seinfeld thought, you know, I was the coolest. He he thought, again, he was, a, I mean, we we were both middle-class Jewish boys from New York. You could say that was... uh, A similarity, but the idea is that it it, being a stand-up comedian is now a profession officially. You know, Mm. it's 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 now something that people uh, say. You know what? I want to do that, and I think a lot of it had to do with could television killed nightclubs, and then all these comedy clubs, um, uh, uh, television. Made them live again. HBO, the first HBO special, which I did, was in 1975, and it was quite revolutionary to pay to see uh, someone, you know, in a college concert. And so, um, I, I just, I think it's a high calling, Alan. Really, I, I remember as a kid seeing a comedian come up to the small hotel I was working in as a busboy. He came in his Cadillac. He did 40 minutes. And people were hysterical laughing. And for that time, they forgot their disappointment in their marriage, their health, their children, their life, whatever it was. And I I still think while it cures nothing directly, therapeutically, it has tremendous value in in a release for life. Don't you agree?
1: I do. I think being able to make people laugh, belly laughs, where you laugh with your whole body and mind, you get taken outside yourself. I think it is it is a noble thing to do. You, do. you did it. You're credited with doing it in a particular way. They say you pioneered a kind of comedy called observational comedy. Do you sense you, you were at the beginning of that, or were you building on other people who got you going?
2: Yeah, I definitely built on other people in in, in the sense that um, I, I just wanted to be different. I wanted to apply intelligence to it and um tell stories not just uh uh, set up punchline set up punchline although every comedian has what could be termed a punchline and it was very difficult at the beginning because what i did was very different and when my first tonight show came um they actually sat me in the panel for two minutes so the audience could get to know me a little and then I did my stand-up. Nobody ever did that. You, you earned the panel after, you know, yeah. a number of stand-ups. It didn't work anyway. It was useless. But I killed them on the stand-up.
1: And, you know, I remember seeing that. And one of the things that I admired about it was that you seemed to be having a real conversation with the audience that was right in front of you in the studio. And it seemed like each joke was actually something that was occurring to you at the moment to tell them about. And that this kind of intimate conversation. I imagine you got that ability from Second City and, and improvising.
2: Absolutely. I, I, I do not write my, um, my performances, the nine HBO specials that I wrote. They all started as improvisation with a tape recorder mm. because things would fly out of my head. You know, Paul Sills, the original director at Second City, I, did you work for him? I did. I did yeah. six
1: months of workshops with Viola Spolin's works.
2: Yeah. Well, she, she wrote the book improvisation for the theater and her son Paul was, you know, I suppose he was a genius, but I didn't understand. I don't know, but he once said something, it's just so true. He said the laugh from an improvisation, the explosiveness of it because of the, that it's unexpected is unlike any other laugh, but you've been in theater, of course, and Your job in theater and a job as a stand-up comedian, I'm not going to improvise. I always improvise something at every show, but I can't do the whole show improvise. That would be irresponsible and wouldn't be good. But it's supposed to be like it's the first time you're saying it. Yeah.
1: And that's, I think you hit on a, a really important element of improvisation, which is that a great deal of the laughter, I think, at an improvisation is... Because of the joy of the, of experiencing the spontaneity, you, there's an extra oomph you get knowing not only is it funny, but it just came out of nowhere.
2: Absolutely. And Absolutely. so therefore,
1: when you act in a play where you say the same thing every night, for me, the goal is to be saying it for the first time just the way it would happen in an Improv.
2: That's exactly right, and he actually used that. Paul used that technique on Broadway by um, taking a bottle, which is supposed to be in the, on a certain table, and having it. And the next performance at a different table, he he directed something, and he drove Shelley Winters crazy doing that. And I can't remember. Because he kept what moving the props. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> he he felt it's an interesting idea. I I, I wouldn't have liked it in the show I was doing, because you get so... Even on automatic pilot, it would only be the best performance. They would never know that that wasn't my best performance that night.
1: When we come back from our break, Robert Klein has a big surprise for me. It involves a casting decision on MASH, and it was something I never knew about. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Robert Klein.
2: I got something to tell you that might surprise you. I was offered the part opposite you in MASH.
1: No, I didn't know that.
2: Before, um... Wayne? Wayne. And my reasons were sound, And be, even though it, I, I had no doubt it would be a tremendous hit. I was getting so hot as a comedian and i just said i'm not interested in um in a series i don't want to do a series i believe you were already cast and i never said that when uh, you know uh Wayne was a- a- alive I-, I i never felt that was uh cricket because i'm sure there uh i didn't get to, i mean uh, i didn't get certain parts that other people got and they never would have but it's interesting i it would have been Imagine that did you did you ever regret it later? I did not, only because the regret would have been so monstrous. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the idea of what it, we called a sitcom, of course, you did pretty tasty things like not having laughter when your bands are bloody in an operation, and was the obviously one of the greatest shows of all time. uh no, you know the only one i ever the only thing I ever regretted is and I can say it now, is I didn't get the part in Norma Ray with Sally Field and Ron Liebman about that union woman in oh, the South.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a great movie.
2: Who was the old director, a wonderful old white-haired director? Uh, I can't remember, but, um, you know, one of those old left-wing guys. He was wonderful. I was doing an action movie with Burt Reynolds, Hooper, and uh. he called me over and he said Sa- Sa- he was going with Sally Field then, he said, Sally is doing this great movie. There's a great part for you. And she came in on uh, 45 minutes on a Saturday just to read with me. And I read with her and the, I'll think of his name later. But names and nouns, Alan, I have uh, my problems like all of us. Um, he, he said, good, damn good. But he cast Ron Leibn, who was Fantastic. And then later on, years later, we were doing a playing our song, the musical at the Amundsen before we came to Broadway, Lucy Arnaz and I, and Sally came to the show and the three of us went out for a cup of coffee afterwards. And she said, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but he once expressed to me, the director, that he hadn't cast me because I was too good looking. You didn't want the sexual <laughs> tension. Can you imagine? I have no other regrets in my, in my career. I, I wanted a life generally without order, without going to an office every day or being a lawyer. I had wanted to be a doctor. A few things got in my way. Calculus, physics, biology, zoology, <laughs> reading, Those spelling. The usual yeah.
1: stumbling blocks.
2: Yes, that's right. That's right.
1: So what now when you come in contact with a young comedian or somebody who wants to be a stand-up artist, what do you say to them? What can you say in a few minutes that might be of use?
2: Well, you must pursue it. You must put it on its feet. Hmm. You have to get up, and there are places, open mics. You bring some friends for support, uh you're not going to get Alan Alder, Barbara Harris, and Larry Blyden, but you friends and try it out and Also, when you think of something funny, it took me ages to remember this to write it down. hmm I re- wait a minute, this is your profession you know now normally the stuff is regurgitated some days later in my mind and comes out but i would I would encourage any young person wants to do it, and you must. My my feeling is, as a performer, if you want to be a performer in show business of any kind, including acting, um, uh, you must want it. Uh, I I think at least 50% of it is heart, is tenacity. With acting, it may be more difficult. You know, you have to be able to prove it. And who gives you the break? Yeah, an agent doesn't want you unless you've already worked and so forth. It's sort of a chicken-egg thing and very frustrating. So I would say for an acting career, it's a lot different. It's more difficult. I don't know. Did you ever – your father was, was a Broadway star. Did it ever occur to you that you – you? by the way, I just saw you in hilarious Bilko, which I've seen in one of my favorite series, when you were the son – of a rich guy and you are an artist. It was just brilliant.
1: It was one of my first jobs. You know what was funny about that job? I had only acted on the stage before that, where you have time to rehearse, you have a couple of weeks to rehearse, and you say the same thing over and over again, and, and you, I, I would know it after a couple of rehearsals. I didn't know when you shoot something with a camera. You're supposed to come in knowing it already. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, okay, stand over here. You're on the telephone. We're shooting your end of the call. Action. And I thought, well, I don't even, I haven't even read this out loud yet. <laughs> oh my goodness.
2: You, know, you couldn't tell. Uh, it, 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 that and The Honeymooners are the, the, two of my favorite uh, comedy, pure comedy series. The energy that Phil Silvers had, that high that can uh, male bonding, you know. Yeah. I, I, we could hear you in that, Alan, I can tell you. Uh, well, in that, you couldn't whisper like in movies. All the actors whisper now. And the older I get, my hearing is not I as know, good.
1: <laughs> I know. It's it's, it's it's a little off-putting. You <laughs> act with an actor. And yeah. And he says, oh, I'm going to... Yeah. And you, you, you wait till he stops talking. You figure that's your cue. And then they they call cut and he says in a normal voice, where do you want to go to eat? How about spaghetti?
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I learned that quickly. It's important to know uh, that film acting differs from the other to be heard because there's nothing more annoying than a stage actor cannot reach the back of the house. And that's the difficulty. Um, and, And then the multiple performance. How long... Did you, were you ever in a play?
1: I think two years, maybe a a year or two years. I can't remember. That's
2: a lot. Yeah, but you know,
1: I so prized making it spontaneous. So it was a different show every night. I wasn't, I wasn't doing the same thing. I was, it was the same lines, but the impulses were all different. But in the beginning, I didn't really know how to apply that. So... I'd forget my lines after about three months. But I'd know what the speech was about roughly, and I could dig my way back in. Then after six months, I'd lose track of it, but I could remember what the play was about. <laughs> well, and I then mean, after about yeah. a year, after about a year, I said, what <laughs> am I doing? And I see exit signs. They must be in a theater. <laughs>
2: Well, I I could. uh, Olivier said this, too. I could think about what I'm having after the show and still uh, in the particular scene I knew so well. But what you said before is very true. Uh, And um, uh, to find something new every time is a great way of coping with a long run. Yeah. Because each each one is homemade, like an Italian deli, where they slice each thing separately for each customer. It's not ready-made, so every time there's something new, and the audiences can differ a lot. And that I always felt that the audience reaction also determined the energy level, and and right. I, I, you know. But the idea is they paid a lot of money. And, the, the, you know, the, the, the worst you ever do, if you come in, you don't feel well or you're depressed or whatever it is, they paid and you've got to do your best. I always felt that. That was easy to do. It's also embarrassing. You can't stand there like an idiot. And, <laughs> right. You know, you're right in front of them and, 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 and all that. And uh, with Neil Simon, for example, when I didn't get a big enough, he, there were so many funny jokes because he could solve any problem. With a legal pad, yellow legal pad, no partner, no cocaine, no bennies, nothing. Go into a corner or come back the next day with the answer and a solution. If I didn't get a big enough laugh and something, I'd work on it, work on it to find out how, and that also kept me focused and interested. Um, it's a totally different thing doing stand-up because. Um, I remember Meryl Streep saying, how do you guys do that? My God, just yourself. In a, I don't know. Somehow after a while, it's natural. There is a certain kind of nervous energy before a performance, even at this stage. But it's converted into energy. And at my age, I have to pace myself a little because I like physical things like climbing on the piano. You know, the the intellectual <laughs> comedian likes silly stuff, too. I'll tell you, Alan, in my life, I was a uh, couch potato kid. I lived on the sixth floor of an art deco apartment building in the Bronx. Um, My wife, my only wife, I'd been divorced for 34 years. Brenda Boozer, an opera singer. We were married 16 years. She was an outdoors person and exercise person. And I had been working with a trainer for about 35 years, three times a week, comes to the house Uh, We both watch television. I know what to do without (laughs) him. I mean, I go through the exercise. Oh, you do do go through the
1: exercise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought he came over and sat down and watched Bilko with you.
2: We do watch Bilko a lot. He's too young for Bilko, but he loves it. He's he's the kind of guy, black and white, although he's, he's grown old with me. He's close to 60 years old. No, I know what to do without him, but the fact that he's going to be there that I have an obligation and I'm actually paying for this. The best money I ever spent because I I still have, and I just became a grandfather for the first time. Oh,
1: congratulations.
2: Five-month-old granddaughter, my son and his wife. And I, 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 I never thought I would enjoy it this much.
1: You know, I would love that we could talk all day and all night. It's, it's so much fun to trade memories with you and trade understandings of the way we see our work. But we, we're running out of time. However, we always end every show with seven quick questions. Okay. They're roughly to do with communication. See what I mean? Of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood?
2: E equal MC square. Uh, that, the Einstein theory of relativity. I thought I had it with a bicycle with a flashlight and does it coming closer, but I I, I wish I could understand that.
1: Okay, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: <sighs> that is difficult. Like w- whether or not to debate, uh, you know, people don't want to debate a Holocaust denier or Robert F. Kennedy for that reason, who is a family friend and who, in whom I'm Incredibly disappointed. Um, um, It's difficult unless you have the proof in front of you. If you show them the book that says, and the book Mm. is authoritative, it's very difficult. If someone is is absolutely married to the idea.
1: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: What size shoe? I I was performing in, uh, well, I mean, it may not be the strangest, but I did this show in Florida in a big retirement community, about 3,000 people in this audience. And a a man comes down. He said, I have an important question to ask you. I have to ask you this. And I thought, you know, he said, What size shoe will you use? Boy, they're big, those feet.
1: (laughs) That's what he got out of your whole performance. That's
2: what he got out of my performance.
1: (laughs) Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Um, it's hard. I, I know a couple that are close to me and they need, one is a widow, my sister, and she needs to talk because she used to talk all the time with Harry and so on. And I just, I let her talk. Um, uh, there is a way of saying, excuse me one moment. Um, I have uh, uh, an appendectomy to perform in the bedroom. If you'll just excuse me, I'll be about two hours. That's the only thing. you can make up a bizarre thing. But most people, if they need to talk and you love them, I, I prefer to just keep quiet and let them talk.
1: Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table. You're sitting next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation?
2: Um, Name. If, if, if I'm sitting at table with someone I definitely want to introduce myself um, so that already breaks the ice and not always but in many cases they've already they already know me because they saw me on television four thousand times um, but um, I like to press the conversation I always like to be interested in who this person is is that your wife or yes and once we get I always like to listen to to other people's stories.
1: What gives you confidence?
2: Ah. um, I tell you, going and it still thrills me, Uh, going on stage, well, Broadway was wonderful. I had the full Broadway treatment, Tony nomination, people screaming, cheering. I think going on solo making an audience convulse with laughter for as long as an hour and a half or so. And then somebody gives me a check. <laughs> and the kind of money that we never had, is we weren't poor, but my father never you know, we made $12,000 one year. It was a big deal. So it's still, while money isn't the most important thing in my life, it just it seals the deal because... It's, it's professionalism at its, at its highest that you do something for which you made hundreds of people happy, including the person that wants to pay you, and he's more than willing to give you this paycheck, which is usually more per hour than uh, even my dentist. I mean, I have $35,000 mouth here. So when I can't open a soy sauce, which is frequent, you know, I dare not bite my teeth on it because it's a $35,000 uh, restoration. Dr. Himmelfarb would have a heart attack and thank God the HMO came across with $200. All
1: right. Last question. What book changed your life?
2: Ooh. Um, Catch-22 was uh, um, very important um, also the, the Hobbit, which I just reread catch 22 kind of, cause I, uh, it took world war two, which I was kind of nurtured on and reading all this stuff about it. And I still reading all kinds of stuff and it took it and made it something completely different. And I bumped into, uh, Joe Heller on the beach in East Hampton, maybe 50 years ago. And I said, you're Joe Heller, aren't you? Joseph said, Yes. I said, well, you know, Catch 22 is one of the five best books I ever read. What were the other four? <laughs> and, and I said I had a little trouble with the first 70 pages. He said a lot of people did. If I had a chance, I would rewrite it and make it a little more clear at the beginning. I think I, I could say, I mean, there are a few, Alan, but I would say that was it because it took the absolute terror, which is war, the absolute terror. And made it humorous, which are the most difficult things to do, is, is, is make humor out of something so terrible, which is a way of coping with it.
1: Well, we're brothers in arms in that regard, and I, I'm so glad to make contact with you again. Yeah. Robert, thank you, and thanks for t- taking the time to
2: talk. Peace, buddy. Thank you. Okay.
1: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Robert Klein, along with Richard Pryor and George Carlin, is widely credited with transforming comedy in the 1970s. He starred on Broadway and in the movies. He appeared in the first HBO comedy special and he helped launch the first season of Saturday Night Live. To this day, his brand of observational comedy continues to kill. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Shumay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Elizabeth Rush. She's a writer, a wonderful lyrical writer who joined a research ship making a first time visit to what's been called the Doomsday Glacier in Antarctica. Its real name is the Thwaites Glacier, and the expedition was to try to assess just how vulnerable it is to collapsing due to climate change. Here's Elizabeth recalling her first sight of the ice wall where the glacier meets the ocean.
2: I remember, you know, the morning that we knew we would arrive. I woke up super early, I was like a kid on Christmas, and I ran up to the bridge. A good handful of my shipmates were up there already, and many people described the glacier on that first morning as looking sick or gnarly, that it was full of sort of like strange crevassing and slumping. So I remember feeling like my heart was being pulled in sort of two directions at the same time, like incredible awe and incredible grief to realize that like this thing that literally has taken me a month to get to, it's the farthest I've ever traveled in my entire life is being forced into strange shapes by human activity so far away from it.
1: Elizabeth Rush also talks about the choice she made in becoming a mother in a time when climate is changing so drastically. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: My son had a gift with technology Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years,